and welcome to the St. Emlyn's podcast. I'm Simon Carley. And I'm Natalie May. And today we're going to be talking about a problem which is not uncommon in the emergency department, uh, particularly if you're doing paediatric emergency medicine, and that's the patient who presents an infant, young child, an infant who's been brought in who is apparently fine now, but there's a story associated with that child that they've had some event at home or in some other setting where they've become very unwell for a brief period of time. They may have been blue, they may have been lifeless, they may have been unconscious. And that's quite a worrying story. But then when you look at the child, the child looks absolutely fine. And marrying those two things together, it can be a real problem. We need to think about how we approach that. So Natalie, you've done some work on this. So you've put together an approach about how we would look at these children when they first come in. So infants who've had this sudden collapse and we don't know what's going on. Yes. And I think the first thing to say is that when you've got that infant in front of you looking completely well, it can be really easy to be dismissive of parents, but that's really unfair. I think if you don't have children, it can be hard to appreciate exactly how stressful and how anxiety inducing it is to be responsible for something that is so small and so fragile. And if you speak to brand new parents they'll often tell you when the first the first nights when the baby comes home they're listening out for the breathing and they'll notice that sometimes there's a breath that there's a slightly bigger gap between and then they're immediately awake and alert and concerned that there's something going on so then you imagine that not only are they having slightly longer between their breathing sometimes they look like they're not breathing at all or they've gone blue or whatever that's terrifying i think all parents will recognize those episodes but there are the group of patients who we see that it sounds a little bit more dramatic than that where the baby has gone floppy they may have gone blue and they've got a more prolonged period of apnea those are the ones that i tend to see coming into pd and i think it's the same for yourself so if the baby looks absolutely fine in front of you it's important that you don't diminish the, the fact that that's happened if they're not fine in front of you well that's really easy actually for us that's what we do in emergency medicine first step is to resuscitate that baby whatever that means so that's, that's nice and straightforward. It's the other ones who look fine that present us with a bit more of a diagnostic challenge. Because then you've got the, the difficulty of listening to something which was often seen by somebody who's not dealt with a lot of uh, babies before, and you're trying to interpret on the basis of history where the clinical clues when you examine the baby might not be that great. So what what's your approach initially about getting into what exactly happened? So there's a lot of conversation that needs to happen. It might be a good time at this point to talk about the difference between ALTIs, as we know them and have known them in the UK, the apparent life-threatening events, and this new term for breweries, the brief resolved unexplained events that you might have seen in a a paper that came out, I think earlier this year, maybe late last year, um, that we've written a blog post about. There's some other phone resources about that. And it's essentially a, a slight adjustment to that definition, maybe a tightening up of that definition. But it's can be really confusing when we've called something one thing for for a while and now we're calling it something else. So the ALTI, ALTI is the one that I'm most familiar with and I think breweries starting to come in. ALTI is the apparently life-threatening events. Breweries are brief, resolved, unexplained events. I suppose brewery sounds a little bit nicer. It doesn't sound quite so terrifying. Um, but what characteristics will you see in patients who, what, what, what kind of things are we seeing when these patients come through? What's, what are we getting in the history and the story? The nice thing about ALTI is that it works as an acronym for what you see. So the A can stand for apnea or abnormal breathing in some respect. The L can stand for looking different. So a color change, either being pale or blue or sometimes red in the face. 
T is for tone being different. So sometimes parents will tell you the baby was floppy or stiff. And then E is a bit clunky, but exhibiting unconsciousness. So sometimes they'll say the baby wasn't responding normally. They might not necessarily be completely unconscious, but there's a, there's a change in conscious level. And the brewery definition doesn't really fit that nice model, really, does it? It's a bit of a shame. Um, anything different in the brewery that, that we need to say in terms of definitions that we need to pick up on? So the brewery definition just tightens that up to say that it has to last less than a minute and be completely resolved. So these are not the babies that need to be resuscitated. There's also the definition that we need to have no discernible underlying cause, although that's something you're going to get to slightly further down the line. 95% of these are going to be benign, normal pathology, normal normal physiology, but there's that little cohort that have something serious going on, and they're the ones we're trying to weed out from this collection. On your LT, LT definition, I quite like that because that will... It'll skim off a few patients when we initially see them at triage, when we have our initial assessment, that if they don't fit those criteria, so for the brew criteria, if it's more than a minute, if it's not resolved completely, if they need any resuscitation, that is a different group. We are really talking in this podcast about the group of patients who are looking fine with a brief episode, be that what it may. Delving into that, what clues can we get in the history or the examination, mostly the history, to be honest, about how we find or look for any potentially significant causes or high-risk patients? There is definitely a group of patients who are going to be more concerned about, and actually those are the group of children we tend to be more concerned about whenever they come to the emergency department. So those are ex-prems, because you can never trust a premature baby not to do something strange, even if they've got beyond their gestational birth age. So if they were born four weeks early, they're now more than four weeks old. Still count them as, still think about them a little bit differently. We need to think about things like feeding, what what was the pattern related to feeding? Because some of these episodes will be related to food going down the wrong way and babies have a sort of brief choking episode and parents will often describe that in the same sense. So you can ask about how much they're feeding, how often they're feeding, how soon they'd fed relative to this funny thing that happened. We want to think about all of that birth history, so mode of delivery, whether there were any abnormalities on the scans before they were born, and those factors for neonatal sepsis that we always have to have in the back of our minds. In the UK, we tend to think about neonatal sepsis up to a month of age, but in the States, the definition goes up to 90 days. So I'm a little bit more liberal if they turn up at six weeks, and I'll still ask about those risk factors for neonatal sepsis and think about what might be going on. There's some other stuff we need to think about. So if mum's taking any medications, if the baby's had that vitamin K injection at birth, particularly if they present really, really early, and what the birth was like if the baby was resuscitated and, and had to go to the neonatal unit. And we want to know what that was for, because obviously babies who've had, who've had a neonatal sepsis or been treated for respiratory compromise after birth, we're going to be a bit more suspicious about those. And then we want to be clued into other things that have happened to that family. So particularly if mum's had previous pregnancies that have or haven't resulted in live births, and particularly if there's been unexpected deaths in childhood in that family or in the extended family, that's going to make us even more alert to something strange and unusual going on. I think what you're describing there is the necessity here to take a really good history about the event itself and also to take really quite a profound peripheral history to look at all the other things that might be going on i think that's that's incredibly important here sometimes in emergency medicine we can become a little bit too focused on just the presenting complaint but this is a good example of where you do need to sit down with a bit of time and to explore a number of areas around the family and the child and you've given me a couple of rules of thumb in the past about 
neonates and about this type of group of patients which i think are quite good so you've got the rules of may haven't you for this group yeah i'm trying to trying to make that a thing i don't know if it'll work but you know you can you can only hope so rule one of may is that whenever you see a baby in the first week of their life in the emergency department as well as all of that birth history stuff you need to say to mum and dad is this your is this your first baby how's it going it's kind of rubbish isn't it because i think everybody believes that you have a baby and it's all going to be sunshine and roses and you know they're going to be so cute and it's going to be wonderful but it's really stressful and we have a responsibility to look after that whole family so it's worth taking the time to talk through these kind of things reassure them that it's normal to feel overwhelmed it's normal to struggle to get established with breastfeeding and you can find out a lot about that family and give them some really important support at a key time if you just take that that opportunity to have that conversation. Allows you to build a relationship with the family as well, which will help you get a better history. Because some of the things which may have gone on at home may not have been ideal, and you really need to have a good working relationship with both mother, father, and any other peripheral members of the family around to get any additional information. And then rule two? Rule two is that in the UK, you'll your parents will be given when you're born a, a red book that contains lots of information. Hopefully the midwife has written in the birth weight and the length and the details of the delivery. We want to get them into the habit of bringing it along. So it can be easy to discourage them from doing it by saying, oh, I don't need to look at that. It's not relevant. You know, just like Joe Lex says about um, allergy bracelets, if you see someone with an allergy bracelet, don't be dismissive. Usually the person who's bought them the allergy bracelet has come to the consultation. You can say, oh, who brought you that? It's really, really helpful. And you're building a rapport with that family automatically and investing in those future consultations. So Red Book, give them some thanks, give them some praise. And I think it's a really good example that... We sometimes say that paediatric emergency medicine, particularly with the, the, the babies, is a bit veterinary because you don't get any history from the patient. That's no excuse for not looking for history from peripheral sources. And there's always there's always more information that you can get. There are other questions that allows you to move into so you can explore exactly what happened at the time. There are a couple of things there that you might want to explore about the event when the child went floppy, which might help you make diagnoses later on. Yeah, so it can be really helpful to get a bit of context about what was going on at that exact time. Were We talked about feeding. Was the baby feeding at that time? Were they perhaps opening their bowels? Because babies do tend to go a bit red in the face. And it can be normal for breastfed babies to struggle to establish a regular bowel routine. They can appear to be constipated, but they're probably not. Um, was the baby asleep? And if they were, how did the parents recognize that this episode was happening? And then we want to know what they did. Lots of neonatal units now will train parents in delivering neonatal life support, so chest compressions, mouth to mouth. And if the parents did that, we we want to know about it. We also might want to know if they shook the baby to try to wake the baby up. Sometimes people do strange things under pressure and under stress. Um, and we're always going to think about non-accidental injury in these babies when we see them. Not We're not accusing anybody of anything, but it's always going to be in the back of our mind. So it can be helpful to say, what did you do to get the baby to wake up again? So we gather a lot of information and then we need to go on and evaluate what might be actually happening because the list of things which can cause this is actually quite long. Oh, there's absolutely loads of them. Neurological things, respiratory viruses, tiny group of cardiac patients, those rare metabolic diseases, could be anything. 
And you will sometimes get some clues. So if you examine the child and you hear a heart murmur, that's going to lead you to consider con- um, cardiac problems. If you look at the child and they've got you know significant respiratory distress or, or some abnormality in that examination. So it is important to do that good quality neurological, respiratory, abdominal, cardiac examination in these patients. You undress the patient. All the sort of stuff that you talked about before, Natalie, about young children need a proper systematic examination, even if they look from the end of the bed to be completely normal. And then there's the group that even if everything seems to be normal, we're going to be really a little bit careful about. So that's those neonates definitely in the first month. If they were premature, so under 37 weeks when they were born, if they've had multiple episodes, if they had a long episode, so one that doesn't fit that under a minute definition. And I think that's really tricky because I don't, I don't know how you are, but under stress, I find that time either flies or I think it's not been any time and it's it's either been ages or it's not been any time at all. And I think our perception of time is really altered when we're under stress. Those babies who look unwell, those babies who have uh, other medical conditions already diagnosed, those ones with a family history for sudden death in childhood, especially if they've had sudden deaths in other babies, and those who we are concerned that there might be something non-accidental injury related going on. Those babies were going to definitely admit or refer to the paediatric team. Okay, and there's some investigations. Investigation is always a bit of a tricky one in this group because you always wonder about whether you're going to over-diagnose, well, not over-diagnose, but over-investigate this group. But what investigations do you think are, are routine? I mean, some will be guided by examinations. So obviously, if you find a murmur, you're going to be doing an echo or um, an, an ECG. But are there any investigations which you think we should be doing routinely? So, yeah, but not in the investigation sense of doing necessarily an ECG or checking blood tests. It's more about thinking about the context of that family. So going right back to the beginning, these parents are very much spooked about what's happened. And actually just having a little bit of time when you're monitoring the heart rate and sats of that baby can be really powerful in reassuring them that you're taking them seriously, but also that there's nothing too dramatic going on. So my kind of baseline for these babies when there's nothing else I've found that's worrying me or suspicious is to admit them to the paediatric uh, observation unit so that may or may not be under the control of your emergency department. But a period of observing one feed or two feeds while having some ECG dots on for a heart rate, monitoring their SATs and just seeing what happens, that usually will cover everything. And then if nothing happens in that period, you can usually refer the baby, baby to a, the community health team, so the health visitor, and let them go home with some good safety netting and tell them it's absolutely fine to come back if it happens again. Because obviously then they're going to slot into your red flags for multiple alties and you're going to think about doing some further tests. And there are some units who would routinely do ECGs in these um, babies. Not everybody does. There's some units that will do pertussis swabs if that's an issue in your local area. Um, but the mainstay here, I think, is a period of observation. And observe feeding by somebody who's seen lots of babies feed. We have fantastic pediatric nurses who will support the parents through that observation period and give sort of on-the-spot reassurance, which is much better than just meeting me or meeting you and having a, a, a relatively brief conversation that we say everything is okay if that's been done over a period of observation it's much more powerful absolutely and breastfeeding absolutely brilliant for mum and baby if you choose to do it but really difficult to get established with and there's lots of usually breastfeeding nurses available who can provide some support and the uh, the emergency department nurses can usually connect mum into those if that's something that needs to be done not something we're going to usually find out in that very quick consultation but something will come out when uh, the baby's being observed during feeds
It gives me an idea about how to approach these. So we've got the, the, the four elements, haven't we? We've got resuscitate, authenticate, elucidate, and then evaluate, stroke, investigate, depending on what we find. Let's, let's have a think about a couple of cases. So got a six-day-old baby who is brought to the ED. Um, they've been delivered at that hospital, normal vaginal delivery, at 38 weeks gestation. Um, had an, it was an IVF baby. I'm not sure if that's relevant or not. And everything was going fine. Normal scans, everything was okay. No abnormal vaginal swabs or infections or fevers during the labor. So basically went okay. Labor started spontaneously. He was delivered within eight hours. Initial baby checks were fine. Um, and he's breastfed. Needs to be pooing and weeing okay, which is always a good sign in a neonate. Um, he's not been crying as much as expected by the mum. And he hasn't had a fever or anything like that positing, you know, vomiting a little bit of milk back after feeds. But mum brings them in because they've been found in the Moses basket about an hour after they've been feeding and they'd stopped breathing for a few seconds. And they went to pick them up and noticed he started breathing again, but he seems to be breathing very quickly. It's a normal colour. And whilst the mum was watching, he seemed to stop breathing again for a few seconds. Not exactly sure what was going on, but felt like a long time. And picked him up, opened his eyes, put him back to sleep again, and then he was okay. That's not an uncommon presentation to ED. How would you how would you sort of manage that and what do you think is going on there? So to use that approach that we've talked about, this is not a baby that needs resuscitation because he's now looking fine. Um, and it doesn't actually meet those ALTI criteria. So we've had a slight respiratory pause, but not really very long. We've not had a uh, change in tone. We've not had a, a change in uh, colour. And we've not had an apparent unconsciousness. So it's not an ALTI or a brewery. And actually, that sounds a lot like something called periodic breathing, which is something we alluded to right at the beginning when we were talking about parents listening to their babies breathing when they're asleep. So neonates will have this uh, alternating breath and respiratory pause that happens. It's quite normal. And they can have pauses of up to five to 10 seconds. And they may even have a, a period of desaturation or a change in heart rate that goes with that, which you're not going to know about until you're monitoring the child. But that will self-correct. Um, and it usually doesn't need any kind of intervention at all. So for this case, you're going to do all the things we've talked about, have take a really good history, make sure, ask mum how she's getting on if this baby's only six days old and what she's been expecting. Give her some tissues if she cries and reassure her that she's not doing a terrible job, that it's normal to struggle with breastfeeding. And then reassure that actually this is probably within the normal realms of a healthy baby. They may or may not get onto the short stay ward for a period of time, depending on how that conversation goes and the level of parental anxiety. And either approach, I think, would be reasonable. Absolutely. Okay, so let's have a think about somebody else. So we'll bring in another case. So this is um, a little baby, five-week-old baby, and born as a twin, actually, at uh, 34 weeks gestation. And pregnancy otherwise was pretty much uneventful. I'm sure twin pregnancies are pretty tough. But since then, it's been you know, pretty hard work. And they, they were actually in hospital for about five days post-delivery, just getting themselves sorted because they're a bit small, really. They have been gaining weight. They are breastfed and they have top-ups with um, first babies, which is a challenge. Twins are always a challenge. First twins are probably even more of a challenge. And there's lots and lots of other people around. They've, everybody's been coming to have a look at this baby and they've developed a bit of a snuffly nose over the past few days. Not uncommon. But they're still drinking. They're still um, breastfeeding. They've still got wet nappies and the stool's normal. Mum brings them in because when she was bottle feeding this baby, they appeared to sort of start gasping for breath and the breathing sounded really bad. They went very stiff. They arched their back. It was all happening very, very quickly. And then they didn't seem to breathe at all, became very red and engorged in the face. They had 
panicked, obviously, and I think that's not entirely unreasonable. And there were other people in the house, so the mother-in-law was knocking around who didn't know what to do, and you know, the high levels of anxiety knocking around. And the baby was pretty floppy at this point. They tried a little bit of sort of breathing into the mouth for a period of time. Not sure if that made any difference. Not sure how long it went on for. Probably a relatively brief period of time. Bit of a panic on. Babies started recovering very quickly. So they bung them in the car, drove them to your emergency department. You have a look at them. And actually, they look pretty much fine now. So again, going through that approach, this baby is not baby who needs resuscitation. And when we go through those four ALTI brewery criteria, this sounds like a period of apnea potentially with the and then the strange breathing certainly uh, there was a change in color there was some stiffness with the arching of the back and there was some additional sounds uh, and perhaps a period of change in consciousness so this could definitely be an alti as it was related to feeding potentially it may well be a little bit of reflux or potentially a bit of laryngospasm both relatively benign pathologies that will not need any specific treatment but very distressing for mum and the family and actually as a twin I would definitely be thinking about bringing both of these uh, babies onto the short stay ward and observing them for a little while just as we would if there was a a, 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 some sort of tragedy with a a baby and an unexpected death Um, we would always admit the twin the twin baby as well so I think Definitely reduce the stress on this family, bring both in, observe them for a while, and particularly at least one observed feed, maybe a couple, and make sure nothing else untoward happens. I think that sounds entirely reasonable and probably would be good for everybody involved. And, and of course, GI problems are one of the most common causes of alties, aren't they, when people have really looked hard for why they're actually occurring. So that's this sounds typical of many of the patients which you see in the ED. Yeah, absolutely. I think about 50% are related to something to do with digestive system. Let's have a think about another one, 13-month-older, so a little bit older here, and they have maybe different things going on. So Dylan, 42-week, um, born by cesarean section, obviously that's 13 months ago now. Um, it's in a family, they've got other children knocking around, pregnancy and eventful, and he has the usual sort of coughs and colds, he's been immunised, and he's absolutely fine, this little 13-monther. Not any medications, no family history of anything exciting, but mum brings him in because he's playing with his sister, and running around like 13 months I do because he's still toddling not running that well trip bang smack bump head starts to cry and then when mum went over to to pick him up he was clearly looking very strange he was sort of this almost as if he was trying to cry but there was no sound coming out and he's again red in the face so making some of these sort of choking noises and then there's a like period of kicking and waving not not really like fits it's more, more like sort of purposeful movement and then he lets out a big cry collapses and by this time he's gone blue so obviously mum's very worried about this calls an ambulance and brings this child into ed but actually before the ambulance has arrived the child has started breathing again and by the time they arrive and certainly by the time they arrive in ed there's there's pretty much not much going on to be honest so again you can imagine the panic of this horribly dramatic episode of the child lying on the ground and changing color and all this strangeness and that sounds very much like a breath holding spell so these are episodes that happen in slightly older children somewhere between sort of six months and two years we're going to be thinking outside of that alti brewery box once you get over 12 months into other kind of pathologies but breath holding spells are really common um it's usually the context of some sort of emotional challenge so they get fright or they hurt themselves something relatively minor or they're afraid and they hold their breath they may simply hold their breath and you can tell they're not they're not breathing but they don't do anything else or they 
in holding their breath are effectively doing a prolonged valsalva so they might have a rapid rise in that intrathoracic pressure reduction in venous can return which makes them go blue or cyanose and then when they release that they'll pass out as you might if you held your breath they can have a reflex of bradycardia they may have some associated fit-like movements. So we certainly see a complex breath-holding attacks sometimes and they get some apparent twitching. Um, and we know that if you happen to be recording an EEG during one of those periods, that the brain activity is normal and the child will have a much quicker recovery than if they were having a seizure, but it will look a lot like a seizure. Um, so there's a huge uh, breadth of associated kind of strange things that babies will do, but they're very, very dramatic and parents will often be terrified reassure this family that it may not be it's unlikely to be epilepsy particularly with a rapid recovery it probably is with with that history of banging his head a simple breath or maybe a less than a simple but a breath holding attack of some episode the only thing i would do for that child that's different is i would i would record an ecg and record the qt interval and there's some rather controversial evidence about iron deficiency, but we're not going to go into that. But yeah, there's some absolutely, if you if you can't really comprehend how terrifying this might be, I would recommend going onto YouTube and typing breath holding spell child. There's a whole host of videos that parents have recorded of their kids doing this, because once they've done it once, they will usually do it whenever something dramatic happens or they hurt themselves they may only have a single episode they may do it quite a lot and they will usually grow out of it the videos have to be seen to be believed they are quite spectacular and you'll understand rapidly why these parents are dialing 999 or triple zero if you live in australia and, and getting an ambulance because it looks absolutely terrifying um the only other thing we need to think about in these kids is um tet spells so they're hypocyanotic spells associated with a tetralogy of fallow. So once we've examined these kids, we'll be relatively sure that they've got a structurally normal heart. But kids who have a tetralogy of fallow, which may or may not be diagnosed immediately, uh, they can become very cyanosed. They will sometimes squat in order to improve their preload and their systemic vascular resistance. So we want to know particularly about the, the context that this has happened in. But that's not usually related to having an emotional event like these breath-holding episodes are. Yeah, so if you hear sort of unusual behaviour, you say, well, why is this child squatting? That seems really weird. That is a, that's a bit of a clue that something else is going on. I would completely agree with you. We put some of those links to YouTube videos on the blog, on the St. Eminence blog around Alties and Breweries, if you want to search for that. And some of the examples are there. As somebody who works in paediatric emergency medicine and adult emergency medicine, they're frankly terrifying to be honest, if if I was one of my children, they are absolutely terrifying. Yeah, and and I, I really hold my hands up to these parents for sharing these videos because they're so useful for for teaching and, and helping uh, our, our junior doctors and our colleagues to understand how frightening it is. But they're also helpful for us diagnostically to see what's happening. So if this is something that has happened before and the parents coming back a second or third time you in the era of the smartphone it's it's great to have an opportunity for them to record it and then they can show you what's happened i've diagnosed uh, a baby with hypocalcemia because the parents had happened to catch a video of unilateral focal seizures in a, a very young baby and I, I was then more convinced that there was something strange going on rather than any of these other benign things we've talked about so yeah absolutely if they're doing multiple episodes we're going to be thinking about getting the smartphone out and recording it a helpful part of our diagnostic puzzle i think 
to be honest, even in these days, I find people are videoing all sorts of things just on the, on the, even on first episodes, it does seem that there is a, an airway breathing camera mentality out there, which on the one hand you think is a little bit strange. On the other hand, I would agree the incredibly fantastic diagnostic information um, that we get through from, from that. So I've actually started asking routinely, did anybody take a picture? Did anybody take any video at the time? And it's surprising actually how often they do. It's definitely part of my safety net information in these kind of patients. Reassurance, it's probably all normal but we will happily see you again if anything else strange happens and if you are able to get yourself together enough to make a video that would be fantastic but don't worry too much if you're thinking about other things okay so great podcast thanks very much for that there's a blog post that goes with it we'll chuck this up and put the links on as well for that there's those youtube videos to check out in summary four-stage approach to these children who've had a collapse if they are still collapsed or they're still poorly resuscitate them after that, authenticate what's going on. Is this an LT? Is it a brewery? Exactly what happened. Elucidate the history, not just the history of the event, but the whole peripheral history. This is a good opportunity to really crack out your diagnostic and history-taking skills. And then finally, evaluate which path are we going on? What investigations do we need to do? And then in terms of therapy, well, if we find something specific, we'll treat it. But a lot of the time, therapy will be about observation, about understanding, about communication skills with the family, with the parents. And the use of short-stay wards here for the observation of these patients seems to be a very powerful tool in doing that. Have I missed anything, Natalie? No, I don't think so. That sounds very sensible to me. Okay, so next time you see a kid in the emergency department, you have a structure. If you've got any doubts of these children, they are young, remember, there are risks associated with them, even though the vast majority will be fine. It's always good to talk. Have a wonderful time. Enjoy your emergency medicine. Enjoy your pediatric emergency medicine. And we'll see you soon. Thanks for listening.